Welcome to Live Boldly with Sarah, a guide through trauma, personal healing, growth, and discovery leading to the ultimate life of joy, mental wellness, and less fear. As a single mother, certified coach in transitional change and adventure, I will share my personal traumas and help you with steps to be free of whatever internal or external chains are keeping you from enjoying this life. My guests and I go beyond the typical conversation as they share their inspirational journeys. And every other week, I bring you my solo episodes where I highlight issues or ahas that I know you are going through too. From relationships, aspirations that have seemed impossible, motherhood, friendships, work, transitions, inertia, depression, my wish is this forum can help you through all of this and more. My mission is to create a supportive community and connection that empowers each one of you to love yourself and believe you're right to live boldly. Hey, everybody, welcome to another podcast episode of Live Boldly with Sarah. Today, I have on Sandra L. Brown, M.A. I I thought you were a doctor. What the heck? Listen, you, you're you so freaking brilliant in your field. And sometimes, you know, I think that we, um, to me, you're a doctor in your life. Like uh-huh. you have truly impacted so many people, my own included. You wrote Women Who Love Psychopaths. We're going to talk about your book. You were brought to me in my attention by Dorit, who is my former therapist, I should say, uh-huh. now colleague. I don't know if you realize that or not. Yes. She's the one 10 years ago um, at this time of my life, I was in deep, deep, complex PTSD trauma and coming out of a horrid situation, relationship, um, unbeknownst to me, so much betrayal. And it's funny because I, I just want to kind of like give you give you really quickly this background sure. before we dive straight into this work. I also found myself post that in other relationships that were unhealthy because not as unhealthy as as what I had come out of, but found myself in those regurgitating patterns, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, how did I land here again? And then I remember exactly where I was. I, I got to tell you. I, w- I was standing in my bedroom and um, I was talking to Jordan on the phone. And I was like, how did I land here again? And she goes, girl, go get the book, Women Who Love Psychopaths. I've told you, you need to read this. This is important. And I was like, okay. So that's how we landed before uh-huh. you. You, you. Uh-huh. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? It how, is. But right. so that's, that, that's really how most people find our, our work is through someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Once you start sharing um, those not uncommon pathological relationship patterns and histories. Um, yeah. So, well, I'm glad she did. Well, thank you for being on this podcast because I was super excited when she said that she had had you on her radio show and then she's yeah. like, connect you, let's get you guys together. And um, I'm super excited. So I'm honored. Thank you for being here for right. having this conversation. It's going to help so many people. So many people. So everybody grab your journals and I want to dive straight into the work that you do. Tell us a little bit about you. How did you get into this work? Tell me a little bit about this work that you do, this book. Um, give everybody the full title to begin with so that we also can start there. Well, this is video, right? I love it. <laughs> okay. So uh, this is the third edition. So the 
this is the white cover. Uh, women who love psychopaths inside the relationships of inevitable harm with psychopaths, sociopaths, and narcissists. But be sure to get the white cover. The others are old. So, <laughs> um, um, I got into this field uh, probably like everyone else uh, through victimization and PTSD. Um, my father was murdered in 1983. Uh, I was not in the psychology field. I was in my early 20s. Um, I was mistakenly taken by the police to the murder scene that was not cleaned up. Hmm. And um, I got PTSD from that. And um, this was 1983. Uh, trauma knowledge and trauma treatment it was not what it is today. Um, it was barbaric and horrible. Uh, I went into a homicide survivors program um, that was barbaric and horrible. Um, it made my trauma so much worse. And even not being in the psychology field, I really felt like um, this is, you know, this is not good treatment. There's got to be better things out there. So um, <clears throat> I started working just, you know, as a volunteer in homicide after that. Um, and in victims' rights and things like that, and then decided to go back to school because I was sure that that treatment had been horrible and barbaric. And so I don't think that's unusual that, you know, a lot of survivors end up in the psychology field from things they've experienced. So um, that, that that's what led me to the field of psychology. Um I think that in many ways, um, I was still searching for answers about what kind of person can murder someone. Um, because there aren't many therapists that, you know, come through graduate school and say, I can't wait to work with a psychopath, you know, <laughs> bring them, bring them kind of thing. And usually people it's hard work and you, you have to get all this other training and that people don't usually just go knocking on that door maybe when they're a well-seasoned clinician um maybe they'll eventually get into that i was right out of grad school i didn't know squat and i opened up to a personality disorder clinic and was working with Antisocial personalities, psychopaths, narcissists, wow. borderlines, and why I thought that was a good idea. Um, and all my supervisors did not think that was a good idea. Um, but for I think I was trying to come in the back door and still understanding like what is the mindset of someone that can murder someone? So here, let me get up real close and personal and have them as clients and maybe I'll figure this out. So um, I did that for 12 years. And during the course of that time, of course, uh, those types of people's relationships are 
horrible. And they began to bring their partners in. They're mostly, you know, female survivor partners. And, you know, what I noticed was the trauma in the survivors. And, um, and I started to not really believe the psychology that they were selling us about treatment for narcissists and antisocials and psychopaths. Wow. So I just said, I don't buy this crap. I mean, I flew all over the country. I got all the best, latest, greatest training that was supposed to help these personality disorders and either I was the worst therapist on the planet or this crap really doesn't work. And it was at the same time that they began bringing the survivors in. And I thought I can help them. Right. I cannot help you. And so I made the shift um, into working with survivors. So that was probably about 30 years ago. Oh, so that's how it happened. You started on one side and you went to the other. I didn't know that. I switched teams. Switched teams. Dang. And one of the things that we were just talking about before I we jumped on, I asked you, you know, what what is what's tell me what you're seeing within this field right now, because we all know like narcissism is something that people have been talking an awful lot about lately. It's right. like non and you said something that I was like. Uh, why don't I have record going? And what was it that you just said? Well, um, when I started this field, there, there, there was no concept of, of pathological relationships with narcissists or whatever. It was my early book in 2005. Got this conversation going that then grew into a field. And while survivors have been the predominant voice out there um, in social media and blogs, and there are my life with a narcissist book, what they bring to this has been simply awareness. Right. And we've had now probably, well, my book came out in 2005, not the psychopath book, the earlier book that started the conversation. So, so since 2005, um, we've had this awareness that has been growing and growing. That is, the field is probably predominated by 80% by survivor bloggers with what they call awareness campaigns, which is what narcissists do. And we're, bur we're burned out on it. Yeah. Um, there's no uh recovery focus to it there that the predominant message out there is go no contact as if that heals trauma 75 percent of the people coming out of these relationships have ptsd and higher on the trauma continuum and going no contact doesn't heal the trauma that you already got from this right. and so i'm seeing a big burnout with um you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We all know what narcissists do. There's, you know, a million posts about that now. Can we get to recovery? Right. Can we start having what we're supposed to do about this? How do we heal from this? It's not just no contact. 
Right. So let's yeah. dive into that. So when we're talking about uh, relationships, we're not only talking about intimate relationships, understand, like this concept goes into your boss could be a narcissist, right. a psychopath, family members, family members. Um, I mean, I've had it. I've had people, not only intimate relationships, but also other relationships where mm-hmm. I've been butting up against the narcissistic personality disorder. So why do people though, get into these relationships? Tell us a little bit about how does this happen? How do we continue to get into these relationships or how do these people, these relationships start if it, and I, cause the reason I want to dive into this is because I took for so long, I took responsibility, right? Not understanding that I'm actually a very empathetic human being that happened to be the victim within this relationship. And so can we dive into that? Like, why do people get into these relationships? Well, contrary to what you read by bloggers, they make it sound like all of this is based on on like old DV theory, right? That everybody had a wounded childhood. That that is the predominant lead in um, to this. And so, uh, <laughs> we are the only ones that actually did research on this with Purdue University. We. Uh, dove into 600 survivors' histories and uh, personalities to see if that was true. And only 37% of the survivors had adverse childhoods. Wow. That that might be a reason of, I mean, we can all understand that, that For, for people that were raised in that and they normalized that and um, how they end up in it. And so everybody just assumed that was the answer. And um, But 63% of them did not have adverse history. So it can't just be someone's history as to why they end up in these relationships. And so what we're talking about really is two different survivor populations, one with adverse history and one um, that did not have adverse history that ended up in a pathological relationship as an adult. They were not dragging baggage, you know, from childhood into it. And so there are different reasons when you have two different survivor populations. So one is um, influenced by, yes, old um, history, childhood history, and work that needs to be done on that. But this whole other batch is what made me sit up and take notice because I am a trauma therapist been trained in victimology and I kept taking that old DV survivor standard survivor profile that tells us that everyone is codependent that they have learned helplessness battered women syndrome all that and yet uh, and trying to apply it to these women and it in so many of them it didn't fit and that's when I called BS and called Purdue and said, something's wrong 
we've got different populations. We need to really look at this because my survivors were telling me they spent years in CODA meetings, decades, and it never helped them because that wasn't what was their issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so when you ask, like, what has our work been? Um, You know, half of our work has been survivor services, but the other half has been trying to make this real science, not pop psychology, codependency crap, Mm -hmm. but bringing in real science um, and helping this uh, to be understood within the traumatic stress studies field. And um, so, you know, over 30 years, I have both been a supplier, you know, of um, trauma treatment for them, but I've also um, been in research and then we developed a professional association for therapists to teach them how to do this work. And so, you know, I've split my time between you know, working with survivors and trying to build a real science-based field that is not just what the bloggers say it is. Yeah. So you talked about that victims, people that are in the partners of these relationships, they typically have two, This I found this to be very fascinating, by the way, two uh, different parts to them or two different um, uh, traits that you noticed. And mm-hmm. one, would you like, would you, would you mind speaking to those? Because yeah. this, this was where I went, oh my gosh, that's me. That's me. Right. Let me take it right out of the book. So take it right out of the book. Yeah. Uh, it's easier to read a list than try to rattle off the top of my head. First of all, person in personality science is sort of a sleeper science. Um, it's really just sort of coming into its own over the last 15 years. When we were trained in psychology, we we didn't really look at personality much. Um, and, and even in trauma training, we didn't really look at personality. And so personality coming into science now shows us that, first of all, everyone has a personality, but but it is highly impactful to how we think, feel, relate, and behave. Well, anything that affects think, thinking, feeling, relating, behaving is uh, highly applicable to relationship dynamics. Right. And, and so, um, as I said, the predominant um, understanding was this codependency, learned helplessness, adverse childhood thing, but I was finding it not applicable to over half of the women. So we began looking at personality and personality. um, We know most about personality based on personality disorders like narcissism and in personality science, that's mostly what they've been doing, just studying the damn disorders and like never studying normal personality. They're always looking at the psychopath. They're always looking at the narcissist. All the research dollars are spent on personality disorders, not as normal people out here. Um, And so um, what we did was personality test the women. And 
uh, what we found were these two personality traits that were a little off what we call the sweet spot. Um, if you don't have a personality disorder on a bell curve, you're pretty much up at the, the curve at the top. And that means you're pretty normal. That's where we want to see everyone. But these women had like one little toe over the line in these two traits, not way down here in the personality disorder. And in fact, um, Purdue said, we wouldn't have even looked at that. We wouldn't have even paid attention to this little deviation or ever ask a little tweak in your personality. What could that do? Like, does that make a difference? And in you guys, it did. And so these two trait elevations that were just a little bit over the line was in the trait of agreeableness, um, which is um, the traits that make you uh, related to trust, um, always being very, very trusting and trustworthy, uh, being very straightforward, that you're very upfront and honest, which uh, for a pathological partner, um, they can fish a lot of stuff out of you. Um, it can lead to over-disclosure and rapid disclosure with partners. Um, you tend to have a, a giving nature, cooperative, humble, em empathetic, and a lot, that's where a lot of bloggers have jumped onto this thing about empaths and narcissists. It's only one facet. There are so many other things that are um, also applicable than just the issue of being empathetic, uh, loyal, and tolerant. Yeah. And so that trait um, of agreeableness that's a little too far over the line are actually the traits that are targeted. Mm -hmm. uh, um, those are uh, those are the kind of people that uh, uh, narcissists and psychopaths look for, and um, that helped us to understand what traits were being targeted, and how it explained the entrance, sort of the dynamics of the entrance into the relationship. But the other trait um, is the trait uh, of conscientiousness. And um, this is uh, related to being um, very uh, confident people and resourceful. This is where the, you can really look at the opposite of codependency and why we say that a lot of you were not codependent. Uh, you don't find codependent people to be highly resourceful or mm -hmm. competent, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, very organized and ordered, dependable, reliable, uh, takes your obligations and commitments and relationships seriously. Very ambitious and goal-oriented, so you're more likely to keep investing in a relationship because you're success-oriented to make it work, self-disciplined, um, devoted, controlled, but not impulsive, cautious, reflective, careful, persevering, and diligent. Mm. Mm. Those are like to fail. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you guys like don't fail. do good with failure. 
<laughs> you do horrible with failure and that's what keeps you in. So the trait of conscientiousness is what keeps you in the relationship. The trait of agreeableness is what gets you in the relationship. Uh, interesting. But you can hear from that, the stuff related to conscientiousness, that is not codependency. You're like the opposite of codependency. Opposite of codependency. And I remember the first time yes. that I sat in a meeting and I was told, oh, well, you must be codependent. You got to start looking at your codependency. And I was like, how the heck can I be codependent? I wasn't, right. you know, there's so many things about that, that time in my life where I now look back and I can see where the recovery system was not for me. That was not created for me. It was, it was right. Completely right. Created for the other person. And which is what got me into the work that I'm doing today as well. Very much like right. you, where it was, wait a second. What about, what about the survivors in this? How do we lift them up and allow them to thrive in the, into their best life? Um, so how do you, can you spot somebody like this? Can you spot a person who is a psychopath or a narcissist? And I'm sure you get asked this all the time. I'm sure you do. Right. You know? Well, uh, according to the bloggers, there's five ways to... <laughs> And they call that prevention. <laughs> Are you looking to bring a little more happiness into your life or want to learn how to step outside your comfort zone? Guess what? Our digital downloadable programs are only $39 just for a limited time. Go grab Unstuck and Free, How to Live Outside Your Comfort Zone, filmed in the mountains of Southern California, Mount Baldy to be exact, my favorite mountain, or go grab Seven Steps to Happiness. This is filmed on the High Sierra Loop in Yosemite National Park. Incredible, incredible visuals. These programs will take you to that next step and rise you into living your best life. Use the coupon code LIVEBOLDLY at checkout. L-I-V-E-B-O-L-D-L-Y. Go grab them, sarahshiltoncrans.com, underneath more and digital programs. So I take my leading from Dr. Robert Hare, who is the world's leading uh, psychopathy expert. Mm -hmm. He create he's worked in the Canadian prison system for 50 years with psychopaths. And he talks about um, how often he's fooled. Mm. So I'm not going to try to sell somebody some BS on five ways to never pick, a, you know, a pathological person. The fact that my little mantra is, they are sicker than we are smart. I wrote that down. You, you, I heard that and I was like, that is the most brilliant thing I have heard in a very long time. They have a skill set we don't have. We can yeah. read all we want. We can, you know, whatever. And I know it makes us feel better to get five guaranteed ways. We'll never, you know, because we're afraid of doing that again. But they are sicker than we are smart. And even our knowledge bases don't completely keep us out of that because um, their skill set trumps ours. And it even trumps Dr. Hare's. So I'm in good company. Um, over 30 years, have I gotten better at that? Um, yes. After 30 years and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories and patients. Yeah, I feel a little more confident, but I still wouldn't give you five ways. 
to, you know, guarantee that will never happen again because they are the underbelly of the world with skill sets we can't even comprehend. We can learn about them. I can tell you about them. That doesn't mean you have the skill set in order to detect their skill set. So. Right. Isn't it fascinating though? I mean, I, I remember, you know, Dorit and I would have these conversations about dating and this and that and relationships and all this stuff. And one of the things that I remember her telling me over and over and over again is you only know what you know, and you have known some very toxic relationships. And so coming out of that, it's going to be reversing the way that you have been in relationships before. In other words, Sarah, don't give everything right away. Don't tell them how this is making you feel. Don't tell them all about your history. Let them figure all that out themselves and keep your flags open or keep your eyes open for the red flags along the way and the white flags. And that was one of the most brilliant things I had I had heard because, and I didn't, I didn't realize for me that it was this agreeableness piece, right? Like, right. Right. And and that's the biggest part in recovery. So I have, you know, an online recovery program called the living recovery program. And that the first year of that is trauma reduction and cognitive dissonance reduction. And then after that, it is work The second year is work with personality because we come into the world with our personality. We don't sit around um, thinking about our personality and how it makes us at risk. We've always been empathetic. We've always trusted. We've always been straightforward. And and it's not that you just sit there and make a conscious decision. I'm not going to trust like that again. It is so hardwired in your nature that um, it takes an enormous amount of work to begin to see the world through a different filter, not through just the personality you have always had. And it's not second nature. It's really hard work. So I always say it's like if you come into the world with blue eyes, it's like asking you to the world through brown eyes and to sit around thinking about, wait, I'm going to be seeing the world with brown eyes, not blue eyes. It is so innate. This is why patterns repeat mm-hmm. and survivors and patterns of selection. We always thought was adverse childhoods, but in personality, that, well, we're, that's, it's innate. Uh, the work with that is far longer work than reducing trauma, like the first year. And and that the the way that you have to think, feel, relate, and behave, which is what personality is out there, if you're being careful or what we call chaperoning, your trait of agreeableness uh, um, takes an enormous amount of you know, conscious effort um, to begin to lead your life very differently. And that's the biggest work, I think, piece of work in recovery. And it's the only uh, prevention work that I know of. Because if, if your personality is the target and your personality is innate, and it's always going to be there. It's always going to be a target. 
And you're the one that has to be so friggin' familiar with what your trait of agreeable thinks like, sounds like in your head, what it sounds like coming out of your mouth, what it sounds like in interactions with other people. Yes, it's, I, I know survivors say, I'm so exhausted, like chaperoning this trait, like being the uh, observing witness, if you will, out here to myself for the first year. It, it's like that old school thing where they, they would make uh, teenagers take a fake baby home and it had yeah. to be like glued to themselves and how exhausted they were from that. Well, the first year in really working with becoming familiar with the trait of agreeableness is being this observing ego where they're watching everything, watching how that plays out, which is what put them at risk. And they always say, I'm so tired. Can't I just lay the baby down for a, I don't want to do this anymore kind of thing. But once they push through that, that's really the only prevention if the innateness of your personality is the target. And you're not telling people to change the personality. You're not. No, saying, absolutely not. I want to make no. that very clear because this it, is a fabulous personality. Yes. In fact, Purdue said, he said, these are such wonderful people. The only place I can ever see this being problematic of having, you know, a little bit too much trust and empathy, this tray of agreeableness is with an antagonistic personality. Anywhere else, these are loved people. They make great friends, great employees. There's not one thing wrong with their personality, um, except when it falls into the hands of an antagonistic personality disorder. And so it's not that they need to change any of that. It's that they have to become more aware of... of um, that as a target for people who come into their space but no not to change it but to chaperone it in terms of the potential targeting and when but you no, don't change it yeah please don't uh <laughs> because listen i love my clients i freaking love my clients because especially when i can look at them and i can say wow like i can see I can, I can see so clearly, right, because I'm out of those relationships and have changed and have learned how to parent or be with the this personality of who I am and love it. Like, I love mm -hmm. my personality. And um, so, so when you're saying antagonistic personality disorders, you're speaking, I just want to, like, make this clear for everybody. Yeah. yeah. I just make this clear for everybody. Give us, give us what that means. Um, narcissism, uh, antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy. Yeah. Is there a way to tell the difference? I know that this gets very confusing for some people because especially on the web, that damn web, when you're in social media and people are like, well, wait, is this narcissism? Is this, is this, you know, what is this? Like, is there a way for you to distinguish 
what it is or is there just like an umbrella or how do you there's so much wrong information out there i know that's why um every abuser is a narcissist (laughs) we don't even use the word abuser anymore the poor domestic violence marketing campaign just went down the kitchen drain everyone's a narcissist there's no abusers anymore they're all narcissists and what is peddled out there as you know as north uh narcissism half of it sounds like they're bipolar right. not narcissistic that's right why, that's that's why i'm that's why exactly yeah my question so in, in the book i you know i if people really want to know all the ins and outs of how these disorders are different it's all in the book i break down narcissism antisocial uh, psychopathy But the easiest way to understand it is I I do an umbrella term that what all those disorders have in common is low empathy and low conscience. Mm -hmm. It's like Baskin Robbins, 57 flavors. You know, narcissism is a little different from antisocial, which is a little different from... Um, you know, who the hell cares when you've been run over by one of them? Exactly. But we're splitting hair. We're splitting hairs. I, I mean, you know, there's some people that really get into knowing all those differences and they can, you know, read up on them. But the easiest way to understand it and what is so devastating is all those disorders have varying levels of this low empathy, low conscience. That is what's harmful to other normal human beings. The flavor of their disorder, like I said, people can, you know, read up on that if they're interested in the differences between those. But really, it's this low conscience and low empathy. Do are we all born with empathy and conscience, or is this something that obviously not? <laughs> That's why I asked the question. <laughs> yeah. Because I think that, I think that, um, I think that that's something that, that is, it's good for us to understand. There are some people that simply are not empathetic, conscientious humans. Well, again, old psychology was all nurture theory based, Uh, you know, Freud and all his uh, wisdom or whatever you want to call it, you know, put everything in childhood. Well, new science, we got neuroscience, we have imaging, we have neurobiology. We know that crap isn't true anymore. And we know it because in neuroscience, they now do neuroimaging of psychopaths' brains, and there are overt differences mm-hmm. um, that... Uh, isn't just the kinds of things that happen to a brain from trauma, like early childhood, but neuroanatomical and structural differences. And so um, they found similar kinds of uh, issues in brains with narcissism and antisocial personality disorder. So this is very much, no, it's not just what happened to them as a child. There are some that are born with these neuro, neuro, well, gives new meaning to the word neurodivergence. Yeah. 
in a whole big other kind of categorical way that there are some very big brain differences. And it's not differences that therapy changes. Um, it's not differences that if they had trauma as a child, that trauma treatment would change that neurostructural anatomical part of the brain. So there is very much um, some that that's sort of where the um, why they started having two different words, sociopath and psychopath, was to differentiate socio as in social or family orientation, those that were made that way truly from their environment, their social environment wow. made that way. And psychopaths born that way. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was sort of the the differentiation. Well, now we know, you know, um, in personality disorders and the neurobiology of it, that almost all of those personality disorders can be tracked to neuro issues. Wow. 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 Yeah. So we got to get off the childhood thing. I, I agree beat, with you. I we agree. have beat that to death with a stick. Yeah. And you know, it's so far, far past that in science. Yeah. It's, it, it, and I remember, you know, again, like all these little tidbits that, you know, I've learned through the years. And one of the things that Dort would say to me literally all the time, she'd like push it into my head. If they could, they would, they can't. If they could, they would, they can't. If they could, they would, they can't. And, you know, because we as empaths and as, as, as they can change, people, right. they can change. It, It'll be they a need more love. Need more love. Right, right, right. No, Sarah. And I was like, okay, I, I hear you. I hear you. Um, It's, 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 it's brilliant. This work that you are bringing forth. So thank you for this. Thank you. Absolutely thank you. brilliant and needed so needed. Let's talk about the trauma that does manifest in the survivor's body. Mm -hmm. Because in the work that I do, um, I take people out into nature. I guide people through the Grand Canyon. I not just try, I mean, listen, I cross the board where my work was once trauma-based. It's not. Now it's just across the board, all different sorts of people that are finding Mm -hmm this necessity to move their body while working through whatever it is, personal work. And some of that I'm sure is also because we're realizing how many of us have lived through very difficult times in our lives and perhaps not seen it as that. Right. 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 Let's dive into that, how trauma manifests in the body. What, What have you found in this, in this field? Well, specifically for these survivors, um, you know, the, the long-term impact of untreated trauma ends up as medical issues. And um, we started tracking this um, almost 30 years ago. We had a medical piece on our intake um, package and a staggering amount of autoimmune disorders. And mm-hmm. I think that's the that's the biggest where it all hits the wall. Yeah. Um, it's the end result in, in autoimmune, but 
Um, disproportionately, disproportionately high. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the and the medical and by and a lot of times by the time the survivors you know are coming for treatment, they're so medically sick that it's even hard to be able to you know work with them because of their health. You know, if you worked in trauma, that's sort of our mantra about getting treatment early. Right. Um, right. Not just for the quality of your emotional health and to stop being hyper and hypo aroused and triggered and all that, but for, for the end result of your life, the, the medical piece of it, that's like a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Do you, did you find, do you find that, that, people that are in trauma or in that story and understand everybody we're talking about, this can be a little T trauma, big T trauma across the board. Like I think that sometimes um, we think that it has to be some huge explosive thing that happens in order for us to be in the state. And it doesn't, it can also be a series of littler things that also build up. Right. And so I, do you find though that people have a hard time getting out of the story, have a hard time hearing, have a hard time listening, have a hard time uh, digesting some of what you tell them when you are? Absolutely. The first year of treatment is saying the same 10 things for a year. Um, you know, what trauma does is affect executive functioning skills, concentration, memory organization, recall, all of that. And, um, you know, again, you know, back in the day when I was trained in trauma in the late 1980s, all we had was talk therapy. Today, we know um, that is a, you know, top-down approach that isn't as effective. Uh, we're, we're, the somatic, um, thank God, the somatic trauma therapies are leading us away from all of that um, and into more body-based um, regulation techniques, especially in this type of trauma with the, um, the women typically come in with PTSD, complex PTSD, some dissociative types of disorders. And I've even had catastrophic trauma where someone lost the ability to speak for five years. She Mm -hmm. was aphasic, completely aphasic. So, but in addition to that typical PTSD stuff, these survivors come in with another, what I call atypical trauma symptom, which is cognitive dissonance, that internal uh, thinking stuckness of uh, comparing Jekyll and Hyde. I love, I loathe, I want, I don't want, I trust, I don't trust. And it creates such hyper neural activity, cognitive activity that on layered on top of trauma, they can't hear you. They can't retain anything. Like I said, the first year of trauma, we were basically hitting on the same it feels like to me, you know, the same uh, uh, material over and over again, because they have everything that trauma has done to the brain, then everything that cognitive dissonance has done to the brain. 
and their neuro impact is, you know, significant. So what do you tell people when they're coming out of a relationship or perhaps they're, I don't know, sitting in, sitting in their, sitting, sitting at their desk, realizing that their boss is an absolute, you know, uh, narcissist, whatever you want to say, psychopath, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, what do you do? How do you tell people, how do you tell people to, to work through that? Well, it is a unique type uh, of trauma treatment. I had to design a lot of the treatment methods because typical trauma approaches weren't cutting it with the cognitive dissonance. We had to create stuff for that. But I think the biggest thing is for survivors, if they suspect this, and like you said, it could be little T's or big T's. If it's their boss, it's probably, you know, a a little T, but if it's been the, you know, an intimate long-term relationship, it might be a big T is that a lot of survivors don't even know they have trauma. So they don't start out by hurry up because trauma worsens over time without treatment, um, hurry up and find out if that is true. And um, so if you don't know you have trauma and you go out and you read blogs and the survivors normalize the trauma by saying, oh yeah, we all have that without ever calling it trauma. And they don't know they're in a community and they think that this is recovery. We all have it, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. That 75% of the people coming out of these relationships have a trauma disorder. So start there knowing that it leans towards, yes, you might, and that you need a trauma assessment and that, Time is not on your side. Mm. The trauma worsens over time. And it worsens when you are in those blogger communities and all they're doing is telling their horror stories, setting off your fight or flight. And sooner or later, you're going, the next step after fight or flight is freeze and your system's going to shut down. So a lot of people ended up finding our work because they were fleeing from these toxic bloggers that just that was not trauma-informed care allowing people to just tell their stories on social media triggering their whole readership so we end up getting people in bad shape usually from social media Hmm. that it has set off the triggering um in their system so know that um that you might have trauma Get a trauma assessment by a trauma therapist. Rule that out because if it is trauma, um, you need a specific kind of treatment. If it's not, you have more options. Right, 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 right. Wow. And it's true. You know, sometimes uh, they're hot. They're ha- I've heard the same thing where it's just like you sit there and you share the story over and over and over again. And all it's doing is triggering everybody else. And then it's like- well, but but telling that story, and you can tell, and even reading it, they're in hyper arousal. Yeah, I, I think storytelling is hyper arousal. They are in fight or flight, and if they're um, if they weren't when they began, by the time they're telling it, they are. Yeah, right. And then they're setting off everybody else 
the readership who don't have skills to know how to regulate. There's, it's a hot uh, cluster F yep. out there on, in that. And to, for people that, you know, aren't, aren't well, their trauma is not well managed. It's the worst place they can go. Yeah. Tell us a little bit. I want to touch base really, because I know we we have only a set amount of time here, but tell us a little bit about energy vampires. I this is something that I um I want to just at least touch on because <laughs> it is something that comes up in my field too. And the work that I do with my clients is uh, how people just love to suck other people's energy. And what do you do to manage your own? How do you manage your energy? I mean, like literally in this field, how do you manage yours? I live on a mountain in the middle of nowhere. No one can find me. <laughs> you want me to know? <laughs> I do you think I'm up here. You want nowhere where no one can find me. <laughs> Again, after 30 years of doing this, I find that it's people with personality disorders for me, that sucked the life out of me. Mm-hmm. That's my first clue is their energy or how I become dysregulated and their presence. That's, I mean, listen to that one. If your energy right. shifts around the energy of other people and you're normally regulated, what do you think it is? So the first 12 years that I ran a personality disorder clinic, That's why I stayed in clinical supervision every week was about that issue of their energy and how for me to stay here Mm -hmm. so that with myself, not with them, you do the opposite and you don't do therapeutic alliance with them like you do with normal people. No, I'm talking about staying here with me. So because therapy is largely confronting them, right? All confrontation work kind of thing. And so I ended up spending a buttload of money for clinical supervision just because of their energy. And it, it just pissed me off that whole concept of it. But So now that I'm out and I work with survivors, if I go to a cocktail party um, and you just wander up into a conversation and I can, I somatically feel it in my body. People that are passive aggressive, I feel in my jaw, narcissism here, borderlines make me hold my butt cheeks together like all my tension is like I'm clenching my core my butt I have no idea why and psychopaths (laughs) every psychopaths every I can tell where I didn't shave my legs every hair on my body so I can just walk by people like in a you know uh cocktail party thing or drift in for a minute and just feel that thing and I drift on by wow. kind of thing. But but the biggest clue to me that they drilled into me back then was about the shift in me. Mm. Their, their energy is always going to be chaos because that's the disorder, this chaotic uh, energy and disorders. Um, 
but what that does with me, I don't care what it does to them. They're always going to be that. But I had to be so in tune uh, with myself. Uh, um, the biggest thing that I say to the clients is when you really understand what that cognitive dissonance felt like, and people can read in more depth in, in the book about it, when when you have lived with that level of cognitive disruption for months, years, or decades, your number one red flag is when you experience it again. Mm. You don't need any other red flags. The time when you be when your cognition becomes dysregulated like that, um, you're in the presence. Yeah, pathology. Yeah. It's the only red flag you'll ever need if you really have cognitive dissonance down pat. Most people who had it, you know, never forget it. It's like cognitive herpes. <laughs> Just love you. <laughs> so this um, has been amazing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any, are there any last, uh, last pieces of wisdom nuggets that we didn't touch on that you believe that would be helpful to the listeners at this moment? Um, no, I just want to, uh, we've been on this kick about it trauma treatment early. So I think that's the key because, you know, survivors wait, keep waiting to rebound and they don't, and they're losing precious stabilization and treatment time. So if you have symptoms you didn't have before this relationship, uh, have them checked out by a trauma therapist. So then, brilliant. Yeah, you're on the right path for treatment. Where can people find you and your book and your work? Uh, well, they can't find me because I'm on a mountain in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but they. My choice, uh, uh, but saferelationshipsmagazine.com um, is our survivor site. If you are a therapist and interested in getting trained in this work, that website is survivortreatment.com. Perfect. Perfect. And go grab her book, everybody. It is so good. It is so good. I really appreciate Thank you. It. you. Awesome. I appreciate you being on and uh and I love the fact that you're on a mountain. You know, I'm, I'm a mountain girl. I love a mountain girls. I'm a mountain girl. So this is, I get this. I fully understand <laughs> why you're on that mountain. <laughs> well, it, it, it's kept me working for 30 years. So, yes. I wouldn't be Absolutely. anywhere if I didn't have my mountains too. So I'm there with yeah. you. Thank you so much. And, uh, and let's, let's continue this conversation at another time. Will do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Live Boldly podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm grateful to have you here. I believe in you, I believe in us, and always will. Life can get hard, but I promise you, on the other side, it's glorious. I'd love to invite you over to sarahsholtenkranz.com to receive five free meditations recorded by me or download your free guide on how nature is your perfect healing therapy. My site has many free resources to guide you on your life journey, many that I used myself while on my road from victim to thriver. And also, please, I ask that you share my podcast with those who may need inspiration, information, or 
or who need to hear from others going through where they are right now. To grow this podcast, please leave an iTunes review and subscribe. Go find it on other platforms such as iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please also go to my Instagram or Facebook page, leave a message in my comments, and tell me what you think of this episode. Please share in your stories and tag me. I'd love to reshare and celebrate your healing journey. I love hearing from each one of you. Let's keep the ripple going. It begins with each one of us. I love you and have a great day. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.